Hello and welcome to this, our first ever live episode of Book Shambles. We recorded this at QEDCon in Manchester on October 15. QEDCon, if you don't know, is a sort of science and scepticism conference and festival. So we put together a panel of scientists and science writers and science comedians. Unfortunately, Josie couldn't join us because she was on her way back from the US, but Robin is on board with Dr. Dean Burnett, Dr. Helen Chersky, Ginny Smith and Helen Keane. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Book Shambles. If you don't listen to Book Shambles, you really should. And also go to patreon.com slash bookshambles so we can keep making Book Shambles, which is always nice. It's an ugly piece of capitalism near the beginning, isn't it? It's repulsive, isn't it? That's why I always have to do the admin announcement. It makes Robin feel icky. Yeah. Uh, Robin's new book is available next week. Yeah. I will be signing imagined books uh, throughout the uh, afternoon. You'll forge Brian's signature as well. So I'm going to throw it over to Robin, and Robin, you can start it like it's a real normal episode. Which is, well, is that suggests there was some kind of professionalism where there's not, is there? It's well, like, is I would actually, if I was you, if I was a producer, and you are meant to be one, say, why don't you try and do it better than that really cack-handed way you do it when you and Josie are in a cellar in Soho? It's so cellar, um, we've well, I didn't mean that to sound quite now. so much like the novel Room. Um, <laughs> so hello, welcome to Book Shambles. This is uh, sadly without Josie Long, uh, who is is currently away but we are joined to make up for that rather than one guest we have four guests uh all of them are authors all of them are very excited excitable and intrigued by a scientific world and uh so where should we start well we uh we're joined joined by uh dean and jenny and helen and helen it's a double helen and i uh and we're going to get each one of them to talk a little bit about their books first of all dean uh, I'm going to start with you j- just for the fact that you are, the listeners won't know, but the furthest away at the moment, both uh, emotionally and physically. And uh, being a psychologist, of course, your constant analysis of your own feelings has made you dead inside. So um, your, your first book has been uh, a, a remarkable success. Yeah. And, uh, and looking at the, the idiot brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, what have you found from... Well, first of all, if you can just see a little bit of the background of, of why you wrote that book. And uh, what have you found in terms of the reaction to the fact that you are telling people that their brains are idiot brains? Um, well, the background is I didn't actually plan on writing a neuroscience book originally because I'm mostly known for publishers via the Guardian blog I do, which is more general science with a sort of brain leaning because I'm a neuroscientist. That tends to be my thing. And, but I didn't think I was the person to write uh, an actual brain book because I've read many of them, reviewed quite a few for magazines. And... They're generally written by good neuroscientists, and I have never claimed to be such a thing. And you know, I'm not a researcher. I don't actually have my own lab or position of that sort. And I thought, well, I thought, just a sort of subconscious assumption that you had to be a proper working neuroscientist with theories to promote in order to get to write a book about it. And so I pitched a sort of general science book. Nobody wanted it. And uh, sort of then the publisher I ended up going with said, you should write a brain book because you're a neuroscientist. I thought, yeah, that, that sounds logical. But and I was weirdly resistant. And I explained, like, I, first off, I don't think I'm the person to write a brain-based book because I'm not uh, king neuroscience. And I've also had a bit of a sort of ongoing issue with, in the mainstream, the way books and the brain is presented in sort of... In, pop cultural things it's like it's always with a reverence the sort of isn't the brain brilliant look how great it is look all the stuff you can do Ooh, don't look directly at it you'll go blind and, <laughs> and so on and i've never well you will won't you because you'll have had to pull out your own eye yeah. and then place it back in the socket the other way around so yeah, that, yeah you're, you're quite right about going blind that's will, a very good point well yeah, done you probably will <laughs> die of at least blood loss before that you can get to that point so you know Blindness is the least of your worries in that sense. We should make it clear to anyone listening, if you're the younger listeners and, and the older listeners and just the intrigued listeners, please don't pull out your eyes. No. Uh, because we've suggested it. No, don't go all Trump. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it, you know, so I, I, I've, I've always had a bit of an issue because I'm a neuroscientist. I sort of, I, I describe it as I feel about the brain. It's like when you first, when you first fall in love with someone, it's all lovely and marvellous and brilliant and you can't see any flaws in them. And you move in with them and that's great. You know, it's all lovely. And then first few weeks, then you sort of realise they 
takes along in the bathroom and they put the knives the wrong way up in the dishwasher and you know they always leave the door open and you, know, you, you don't kill them but you think about it a lot and, um, <laughs> and that's sort of where I am with the brain I said look I don't think the brain is all that good in many ways and they said well write that book then it's fine I will and I did and that's sort of been the general reaction is positive people sort of like it the most common reaction I get which I was going for is someone reading in my book about what the brain does, why it does this weird thing. And people go, oh, that's why that happens. And that's sort of what I was going for. And people also ask me, is it a self-help book? It's not. It's not really meant to be. It's just information. How you use it, it's up to you. But I, never, I didn't want to write a self-help book saying, this is why that happens, is what you do about it. Because I know the brain is so diverse and variable from person to person that I don't think you can do that. There's no easy answer for masses of people. It's, it's down to you. But... Yeah, the general reaction has been positive, and I do think it takes away some of the sort of pressure that people have. The idea that the brain is brilliant and marvellous, uh, so when it does go wrong, something really bad has happened, is a harmful one, I've always thought. So, look, if, if your head's not working properly, not your fault, it's bound to happen with all this crap going on. And that's essentially, uh, that's essentially the point I'm trying to get across, and thus far seems to have worked. I love that it's the kind of beautifully gory image of you as you talk about falling out with your brain and just that final moment where you've got the knitting needle stuck up your nose and the mallet and go, it's not you, it's me, but not for long. Um, Ginny, you were saying that one of the books that you were working on was originally going to be called Are You Psychotic? So that seems a good place to uh, move from, uh, from Dean's conversation. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was? Uh, so it's moved on, though. That book slightly changed, has well, it? Well, um, that book actually never got picked up by anyone, <sighs> believe it or not. Um, so that it, it was a... Uh, I'm not sure exactly what they were. I don't know exactly how it works, but it was someone who wasn't a publisher, but they weren't the writer. They were like a go-between between publishers and writers. So they had this idea for a sort of quiz book. My background is psychology and neuroscience as well brain end of the table here. Um, um, yeah, so it's going to be like a quiz book, but based on real psychology studies, which I thought sounded like a great idea. Um, and then they wanted to call it Are You Psychotic, which I wasn't so keen on. And we were still in discussions about whether that was going to be the title or not. Um, and they went off pitching it and didn't get any papers. So I never wrote that one. Um, but I have worked on i'm working on my third book at the moment with dk publishing who and this is you've literally got at the time of recording your deadline is last tuesday yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when i agreed to do this the deadline was not wednesday that that moved um but it's fine it's fine it'll all be okay she tells herself um, it is a yeah. really scary thing isn't it i've got the, the the infinite monkey cage book that we've done uh when when it got commissioned and uh, our producer and brian went it's okay we don't have to deliver it till the middle of October and when it comes out in the middle of October they went no no but HarperCollins do everything really quickly and then suddenly uh, at the end of July they went it's due in the middle of August so for fans of finding typographical errors you are going to have quite a jaunt on the where's Wally of spelling fuck ups that is our infinite monkey cage book Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. so, so the book you're working on at the moment, for, which is... <coughs> yeah, the, uh, DK Publishing, he used to be Dorling Kindersley when I was a kid. They've decided it's much cooler to just be using the abbreviation now, so they're DK. Um, so the current one is called How Science Works, which, when I say that to most people who work in science, they're like, oh, wow, you're doing a book on, like, the scientific method and all that stuff. And I'm no, no, there's, there's one page on that. <laughs> um, and then the rest of it is just some stuff about science. Um, so I'm doing a chapter on matter, which is everything from what is a solid liquid in a gas through to particle physics and particle accelerators. Um, there's also a chapter on life. There's a chapter on the earth. It's, it's kind of some random interesting stuff drawn in pretty pictures and put into a book. Do you find it easier to write and things that you are not an expert on. So when you're an expert on, on an area or an area that you really study, sometimes it will keep going back and going, people don't actually really know what that process is and you need to explain it again. Whereas when you uh, are approaching something for the first time or something that is not something you've had to write again, so matter is not something you would generally neuroscientifically be dealing with that much of the Large Hadron Collider, etc. So I think there's a nice middle ground, basically. So I, I actually started off at uni doing chemistry and material science and then kind of went sideways into neuroscience. So actually the chemistry chemistry e and materials bits of the matter chapter has been lovely because I've got like a first year undergrad so I'm a, I know a bit more than the general population but not too much more. I think um, my first book I did with DK was How the Body Works and I did the chapters on the brain and the senses and you do have to just keep double checking yourself and thinking 
is that something that I understand because of what I know about it, or is it something that everyone can understand? When you get through to things like particle physics, which, well, A, no one understands, um, and B, I've never... Uh, and now the descriptive uh, subtitles, Helen Chersky gives a look. <laughs> I've not spent any time studying. I must admit, I found those pages quite difficult because to explain something really simply, and the DK books, they're really heavily illustrated, and you have like 40 words to explain quantum entanglement, and that's quite a challenge. Um, and you have to really understand something in order to explain it in that few words. So, yeah, so the particle physics is perhaps a little bit out of my comfort zone. The kind of the middle ground is quite nice. Um, the second book I did was How Food Works. Uh, so that was all about sort of food and nutrition, which was really interesting. because so it was something that sort of the chemistry side of things I knew a bit about, but I didn't know that much about the nutrition. So I spent a lot of time reading about that. And that was really interesting and a nice kind of middle ground where I didn't know too much, but I knew kind of enough. Now, uh, Helen, so uh, let's turn this into just a minute. I was not making any faces. You've, uh... <laughs> for, the re for the record, for the listeners, I was definitely not making any faces. Without Honest. deviation, hesitation or repetition, <laughs> Helen Chersky, you have one minute on quantum entanglement. The, uh, so um, there's an, it's an interesting point. We will talk about your book, cause it, uh, but before that, that what point, because very often with physics, there will be points where people go, no one really understands this. But at what point do you think the line is drawn between what we can have to some level of scientific understanding and that point where it almost becomes philosophical? So I would say, for instance, an example that I would imagine is something like string theory to me appears to be a, a, a philosophical premise, as, as does things like you know, simulation theory, which I know is even, even more so. <coughs> So there's a, very simple, there's a very simple line in my book for that, and it is science if you generate a testable hypothesis, a falsifiable hypothesis. If you invent a theory, and some parts of string theory are a bit like this, where you basically go, well, we think, you know, we, we've got this little jigsaw piece up here, and we're just inventing all of the rest of the jigsaw, because wouldn't it be nice if it looked like that? But you've got no way of inventing an experiment that can test whether or not that is true. That is philosophy. Mm. But when you have a hypothesis that says, well, if this is the way the world works, then I can make a prediction, and then I can do the experiment to see whether my prediction is correct. So that's, that's what, and that's why a lot of cosmology and, um, so it's actually especially cosmology because that's, the, the question is, sometimes you can come up with a theory that you might not be able to test now, but you might be able to test it in 40 years time. So maybe it's worth doing the thinking about it, but there's things about multiverse theory, right? Currently multiverses are complete, it's an untestable hypothesis. There's no way to falsify it, right? And, but there might be, but up until the point where you can, you can come up with an experiment that could prove you wrong, that you can do, I think it's philosophy. But before that, it's science. Just because you're on that, just I think that multiverse and many worlds, which are two different things, but which right. are, uh, can often be, be lumped together. Are you able to give a, a, a brief description of what the, the different understandings of what many worlds theory means and its connotations of what multiverse theory is? No. Not Great. Um, because, so, because it's a subtle thing and it's important to get it right. And I would have universe. to go and look and check. And I, I yeah. So that moves on to you, Helen. Helen Keane. So, um, many worlds versus multi. You have to answer that. It's just, it's, just, it's unfortunate that's the way it works yeah. inside. It just keeps getting passed, passed on. Along. Now, you, Helen, like me, are someone who is, who is not a scientific background. Um, then you, you started off as a stand-up, didn't you, as well? And then you found that way of going, there's something that I love that I want to kind of talk about. And, you know, it does become easier, doesn't it, to do a show when you go, yeah. I really want to share these ideas. So can you talk a little bit about the process of going, right, so this, I can't just do stand-up stand-up now. I'm going to place restrictions. And your, your first thing that I know of was the uh, It Is Rocket Science uh, show. Yeah, I mean, I think I was always doing slightly weird stuff with stand-up because I had this very kind of the stuff that I grew up sort of listening to and reading was kind of a lot more sort of peculiar so when I started actually going to comedy clubs and everyone was like oh you know my girlfriend's done a thing and you sort of go oh okay <laughs> uh, and I was like talking about the Tudors and stuff so it was kind of uh, which is very often the six girlfriends there aren't yes, there? That's exactly. there's, there's a lot of material in Henry I was uh, yes. beheading my girlfriend the other day <laughs> ain't that true lads what the hell's going on Henry <laughs> yeah so I mean I think I always had this quite broad definition just for, I mean just stuff like you know Lee and Herring and stuff you know people Woody Allen uh you know people were talking about weird and wonderful things so I, I was quite surprised by how 
narrow in some ways some of modern stand-up was. And then I realised how hard it is, and I was kind of like, oh, I have a newfound respect for people who say, you know, my boyfriend's left me or whatever. But, um... <laughs> you know. do, you, do you know what? That wasn't convincing. Yeah. <laughs> I genuinely do. No, I do. I really do, because I think it, it, it's a skill, and the more I find out about it, I think, you start off, you know, everybody, you start off doing anything, and you're a bit cocky, and you think you know stuff, and you're, like, in your 20s, and then you realise, then it breaks you. Robin, what, you know that. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, what was the, uh, the, the first kind of the, those, those points when you were first doing material about... So some of the rocket stuff, some mm. of the things, you know, there are amazing stories that you, that you have yeah. about some, some quite extreme characters. Um, and so what, did you start doing that in stand-up clubs before it became a whole show? Or, or did you kind of do that thing, which a lot of people do, which is go, I don't know if this will work in the clubs, but I'm going to try an hour in Edinburgh. I'm going to try it as a complete piece. Yeah, I did little bits in clubs. Like, you know, when you get like a really weird night and there are three people there and you sort of think, I might as well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're not going to care. So, yes, yeah, so we did a little bit of that. And again, it still feels like it's got more narrow. Now. It feels like, oddly, now that stand-up has become a lot more monetized and a lot bigger business, it feels like there is... You know, there's more of an expectation. It's only if you're a woman talking about things that it's kind of there's more of a sort of expectation that your stand-up is going to sort of it's a very broad generalisation, but it's going to fall within a sort of domestic sphere that you're not going to talk about science or technology or whatever. And, and I think that's kind of you know what I've got. Sorry, I'm going to jump in because it's very rude. Um, I've got a right to be in my bonnet about that. That the definition of technology is a thing that men do. So I've got. Um, I learned to. This is not boasting. I learned to arc weld a few years ago uh, in a proper Arizona metal workshop you know, with lots of people in blue overalls. And, and it turns out I kick ass at arc welding. And this is not me boasting. And I said this to the guy because I learned to arc weld when I was five, year old, five years old because my mother taught me to ice cakes. And they, it's exactly the same action, right? You know, you, you're holding a thing, you're guiding where this thing goes, you squeeze in order to make either hot sugar or metal at 2,000 degrees come out at the other end of a nozzle. It's exactly the same. And yet, arc welding is male in technology, yeah. and icing cakes is female. And yet they are demonstrably the same skill. Yeah, take that to jonglers for my advice. 20 minutes, see how it goes. Um, but it is a great episode of Bake Off, though, isn't it? Helen, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good cake, but it does seem to have quite a heavy base. Ow! <laughs> my teeth! Sorry, Noel. <laughs> but no, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, knitting is incredibly mathematical, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But I just mean in that there's a sort of, I suppose I'm talking about it in a slightly different way, in terms of stand up and, and sort of people's expectations. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the space stuff coming back to that I mean just because I think space lends itself to comedy really well because for so much of um, the sort of history of, of the 20th century and, and fighting it, it was a dream I mean flight was relatively new so the idea that you've got this incredibly sort of peculiar people who are outside the mainstream of science imagining this stuff that is possible so I think that sort of lends itself to uh, quite a comedic approach I've totally forgotten the name of who's the guy who was uh, friends with L. Ron Hubbard had a huge fall oh, out and then blew himself up Jack oh, Parsons Jack Parsons John Whiteside that, Parsons yeah. that's a great what's that book called about do, do you know about Jack Parsons you, oh, if you don't he, you should he, he's a really <laughs> interesting one of those kind of uh, late 40s early 50s characters the mixture of kind of the occult with actually they're then developing that that, that yeah, collision I mean, between just, the occult and yeah, science. Yeah, I mean, he's is, one of the founders of JPL, which is obviously still going strong today. And in his spare time, he's like an Alistair Crowley disciple who is summoning demons, summoning demons, uh, but and and performing sex magic with L. Ron Hubbard. So. And the book is Sex and Rockets, I believe, is yes. the current title. of. Uh, yes, I think it might have changed yeah. its title yes. at one point. The, yeah. uh, um, uh, you've also written uh, a book about Game of Thrones. Oh, yes. yes. And I wondered about that. I'm going to ask everyone about this. The, the entrance to ideas sometimes via fiction. Mm. Uh, and so, now Game of Thrones obviously quite... But did you find, when you were first becoming intrigued by those ideas, that ideas both of fantasy and imaginative fiction generally, mm. and the, you know, all the kind of stuff that was, uh, you might find in New World magazine, and, uh, um, that that was a way in? to because Douglas Adams is someone that yes. I think when I read Douglas Adams yes. when I was 10 years old I thought wow what amazing absurdist imagination and then you get to be like kind of 16 years old and you go wow some of this it's is contemporary true. physics exactly exactly I mean yeah exactly but yeah I mean I think with, with sort of Game of Thrones I mean I think it's slightly sort of different approach because I didn't want to just go oh well these dragons are too big to fly you know aerodynamically that would never work because I mean some people do that and that's great but I think for me it's kind of it's kind of hard to explain but it, it's kind of the sort of interesting way in which 
a really odd thing, and I was just talking about this now, is the way that something like Game of Thrones has really kind of permeated not just popular culture, but also mainstream culture. So there's a big, uh, for instance, exhibition at the moment on, of the, about the Scythians at the British Museum, and people are, you know, and you go onto the website British Museum, are the Scythians the real Dothraki from Game of Thrones? And it's like, Scythians are kind of interesting enough on their own. But also that sort of, and, and just the sort of debates around things, like, for instance, there was a recent, in archaeology, for instance, I mean, obviously Game of Thrones is really famous for having very strong female warriors in it, and there is still so much debate around that now. So there's a recent, I don't know if you saw, did you see the Burka Viking burial news? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where they found, just for anyone who didn't, it's um, a Viking burial, an archetypal Viking burial of a warrior buried with um, all the typical warrior weapons, buried with horses. Uh, it was discovered in the late 19th century. I think it's always been assumed to be a man because Vikings, warriors are men. Recent uh, an analysis of the bones, osteological analysis, said these look like female bones. Uh, DNA analysis, there are no Y chromosomes there at all. So, and then, if, so of course, suddenly, rather than assuming that it's a warrior, we're all like, well, maybe, maybe this woman's body has randomly ended up in this way. And, you know, I mean, maybe there's been a mix-up. And the thing is, maybe there has, because we can't absolutely know. But just that debate, and that's still, and you know, when that was reported, it was all, oh, have we found the real Brienne of Tarth? Even though. Brienne of Tarth in the show is from a completely different culture to Viking culture. It would be much more similar to the Ironborn. And sorry, I'm nerdy. But um, <laughs> um, so, you know, so that was a bad analogy, uh, whoever wrote that. But um, so, yeah, so I think it's still kind of, you know, the idea of, of something from fantasy that we, we are still sort of fascinated by some things which we, we don't know about and science doesn't have the answers to. So it's that, those kind of gaps. I mean, I, I realised that I knew much more about fantasy dragons than I did about real dragons. And lots of the lore about dragons real is dragons? actually... Sorry? Real dragons? Uh, Komodo dragons. Well, oh, you know, they're kind of, yeah. You know, sort of lizards, lizards I should say. Um, that there, are, there are so many sort of crossovers. And you, you think if you read fantasy, you will probably know quite a lot about how dragons behave. But actually, so much of it is based on the biology of lizards in our world. And they can do really strange, extraordinary things. I have so been it, reading papers, sorry, for something else about yeah. Komodo dragons, for yeah. something I'm filming next week. And so I have spent, like, last night, I was sitting, oh, sitting reading papers yes. on dragons. And you do start to question your grasp on reality after a while, after you've read another sentence about how the dragons get fatter when they, or the, the bigger dragons hunt like this and the smaller ones. And you start to... Yeah. Yeah, your mind starts to cross over. Because, yeah, because you think of dragons you think dragons as well. Yeah, exactly. So I just think those, those kind of places where fantasy and reality kind of meet, I think, and, and where we're still kind of, as I say, particularly with human beings, so with dragons, where we're still kind of determining what the story is. We're still kind of, and we have these narratives that we're imposing on things that, you know, even when we, we think we're being very scientific. And so pathogenesis. Yes. That's, so is that correct? So, so a Komodo dragon... Yes. Can because I know that at London this Zoo happens. they often have this yeah. issue where they go, oh god, we're going to have to. We think they might have laid eggs. We don't know. It's just yeah. one on its own. Well, so that is how. What, what do we understand? They, Anyone can answer. We this absolutely know. Yeah, they yeah, do. So they do. Flora, I just met the guy. She was on a panel with him, the the zookeeper from Chester Zoo. So Flora, the Komodo dragon, um, she'd been in captivity all her life. So they knew that she'd never encountered a male dragon. She lays eggs and they hatch and they're male because they're not clones of her. She's not cloning herself, but she. They're all completely derived from her genetic makeup. And the theory is that if a dragon was stranded on an archipelago somewhere with a load of other female dragons that you know they can actually produce their own males and because they can reproduce um asexually or sexually which is very unusual in yeah. i think pretty much unique in but it's brilliant i mean yeah, the, idea brilliant. the day the zookeeper comes in and goes hang on the um on the just saying on fiction briefly which i was thinking in terms of neuroscience things like flowers for algernon is, uh, have either of you read Flowers? Yep. Now, now, that was, to me, an interesting study of the idea of human intelligence of, and, and even ideas like kind of dementia and things like that. So did you ever find that with, with you, when, when you were moving towards neuroscience, what were the fictional books? What were the, 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 the works that might have kind of inspired you to think broadly about the factual world? Um, yeah, well, I was um, sort of got, I got into science by, uh, I think it was Star Trek, actually. It was like the one thing, the, the small valley I grew up in was of a sort of more fantastical approach to things. I ended up actually going to uh, the one and only Star Trek convention that ever happened in Wales, in Cardiff <laughs> in 94 uh, or 96. But it actually happened on the same day as a rugby match. So you've got Klingons and Welsh rugby fans. Very confusing <laughs> <laughs> day for all, all concerned. Both of them very hard to understand at midnight, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, uh, the aggressive, <laughs> a lot of phlegm. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> who was there? Who, 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 was, who was there? In the... Oh, I know, it was... Uh, Nana visitor, Mijakira, and uh, Robert Picardo, the doctor from Voyager. So uh, he's very funny, Christian man. But there, there we go. It's QED, you know. Um, <coughs> but yeah, so um, but I, I got myself like watching like, the Borg thing, the hive mind. That sort of got me intrigued by that sort of thing. And then 
I've always been a sort of weirdly analytical kid, sort of looking at the, the valley gossip sort of thing, and sort of seeing how that sort of works there. And, um, and I, I was very different to the rest of my family. I'm not like the outgoing, bombastic uh, singing and dancing Burnett, like the rest of them tend to be. And well, you told me, what was it? You were known as the Von Krapp family, Von Krapp's family. because <laughs> you, you, your, your family were known at any opportunity of any slight increase in light. Yeah. It's a show. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they sing a lot, despite requests not to. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, um, so like I, I was just like slightly off kilter with the rest of my community and then ended up re trying to find some brain books to find out why, what's wrong with me, wrong. Um, and never found an answer, but got an insight into the brain and things. But regarding the fiction of the brain, like Flowers Around on is a good example because it's sort of, the way it's written, it's kind of intriguing. But a lot of brain fiction is not that great. It does perpetuate in, incorrect conclusions. Like the, the whole 90% of the brain thing with Little Blue Sea came out oh, and like, God, that was like, oh my God. Oh, which was that? The, which Blue Sea, the Scarlett Johansson. Oh, film, right. They activate the other 90% of her brain, which is not how evolution works. That's not how <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? But um, but there's a quote going around which I've had to sort of take on. Like this is quote. I think it pops up on Facebook a lot on memes. Like uh, there are more connections in the brain than there are atoms in the universe. <laughs> Every connection in the brain is made of millions of atoms. So logically, <laughs> I've chucked it down. It's actually from the film Amelie. You know that that heavily referenced academic text. Uh, <laughs> but in their defense, the quote is actually, there are more potential yeah. connections in the human brain than there are atoms. So it's a mathematical thing, but you could also say there are more potential arrangements of grains of rice in a bag. It's not anything philosophical, it's just a mathematical point. It doesn't mm. actually tell you anything about the brain. It's mm. just a thing. Uh, so yeah, so <laughs> but I think it's because with space and stuff, like not everyone goes to space. In fact, very, very few people go to space, I'll say that much. But <laughs> everyone has access to a brain, despite whether or not they use it. That's, that's an own decision. But, so everyone has a sort of vague <coughs> sense of expertise when it comes to the brain, I find. Like people say, the brain does this, and then we go, oh, well, there we are then. And it's, I think it's easier to spread misinformation about the brain because it's so yeah, counterintuitive a lot of what it does. So, um, so yeah, so the fiction aspect of neuroscience is a bit more murky. Compared to like space-based things, in my personal experience, Ginny, what do you think in terms of people getting to understand that perhaps the limitations of their brain, or I mean, something that there was a show I did a few years ago, and I've been off and went to uh, Birmingham University and uh, met a researcher called Haley Drew, and she did the rubber hand illusion on me and and all of that stuff, where you basically you you, you don't see your own left hand, you you conceal that, and you just stare at a rubber hand that looks like your you know like like hand doesn't it can be a glove or whatever, and very quickly your brain creates this sense that that is its proprioception, is it proprioception yeah, kind proprioception, of being mystic, yeah. where you, um, so, so you start to think, oh, I, it feels like I can feel that hand. So you have to be and, touching the rubber hand in the same way as they're touching your hand, so you get these kind of <laughs> Well, even just signals. staring at it, yeah, it, it, it works okay. for about 30% of people, if you just stare at it, 30% of people, then as you said, 80%. Yeah, if you, um, so I usually do it with a chopstick. So I get a chopstick and I do the same thing on the rubber hand as on their actual hand, but they are looking at the rubber hand, not the actual hand. Um, and yeah, quite quickly you start believing that's yours. And the best thing to then do is get a hammer um, and hit the rubber hand and you get people sort of leaping backwards. And it's amazing how flexible the brain is. And I think that's something that um, is really important and that we didn't used to know. We've always known that children's brains can change, but actually adults' brains can change and they can change quite a lot and quite quickly. Um, not as much as children's, but you know, you, your brain can rewire itself. You can learn new skills at any stage in your life. And yeah, the rubber hand illusion, it happens within, well, some people get it within sort of 10 seconds. Some people, it might take a minute. There are some people it doesn't work on, um, but the majority of us, we can basically accept something new as part of our body within minutes, which is kind of crazy and actually kind of sci-fi. So is that partly about that that sense that people get of things becoming extensions of their body? So yeah. that is, you know, and when we're talking about technology, for instance. No, totally. I'm, sh I'm sure there've been some studies where they've got people who are like hedge trimmers and stuff, and they basically end up with this sense of their hedge trimmer being an extension of their arm and you get a feeling for where the end of it is and well, i have that, that so i'm about I play, I play by badminton quite mm. seriously and I, my racket when i'm playing is a part of my body and i could tell you i could i can close my eyes and tell you in space what what it's doing where the end of it is even when you know behind wherever it is yeah so, so it's amazing just how quickly it can change and adapt what do we know about those who don't experience that because i found an interesting thing which was 
if you do, uh, Haley was telling me, if you stroke the real hand and the rubber hand in opposite directions, mm. then there is no connect. You don't get any sense of connection. But the small group of people that they had who did have that connection, and some of them felt it even more strongly, uh, they were far more likely to also say they'd experienced out-of-body events. So I just wondered if that, to me, is, again, that subjectivity of of experience. So I don't know about the people who don't experience it, but I I have um, spoken to a researcher who was inducing out-of-body experiences in people using something really similar. So she put a camera behind the person, and then they wore VR glasses so they could see the back of their head. Um, And then they had someone touch the back of their head. So you can feel it on the back of your head, but you can see it on the back of a head that you can see in front of you. And that induces out-of-body experiences in quite a lot of people. Um, It's like an extension of the rubber hand illusion. Um, So I don't know, do you know anything about the people who don't get those? Um, No, well, it it probably falls well within the realms of individual Mm -hmm. variations, actually. Some people have a brain which is wired due to their development, due to their life experiences not in a way that works for that so um yeah, that's perfectly acceptable within the normal, normal standard. i do um i do shows at schools and at festivals and stuff and i have one that's mainly illusions and almost every illusion there is a subset of people who don't see it and um, there are some that are really really persistent and almost everyone will see them but there's others like one of my favorites is the rotating snake illusion i don't know if anyone's seen that it's a sort of it's a blue yellow, black and white patterned kind of spirals. And most people, when they're looking at it, will see it move, um, even when it's completely still. If you haven't seen it, Google it, it's good fun. Um, But again, there's a subset of people who just don't see the movement. Um, And we don't think that means anything. It's just everyone's brain is slightly different. Are there some, not some illusions, so that people who are on the autistic spectrum don't see because they almost piece together the world in a different way. So they see the details, but they don't you know, merge yeah, it all together so the, in quite the same way. The Titchener illusion, um, which is one with two circles that are the same size, and then one has big circles around and one has small circles around. Um, autistic people are less likely to fall for that one, we think, because most of us see kind of whole pictures and they focus in mm. on details. But the important thing to say there is that doesn't mean that if you don't see the illusion, you are autistic. Mm. It's, it's not predictive, but on average, if you get a bunch of autistic people, more of them won't fall for it than a bunch of neurotypical um, people. There's a great, Chris Frith is, is wonderful mm. on writing. Chris Frith and Uta Frith, actually, both very, uh, making up your mind, I think it's called. It's making up your mind, which is, deals with a lot of those. Um, Helen, the, uh, I really want to talk about all these things because I find them absolutely fascinating. The left brain, right brain thing, and I'm very excited. Oh, God, at, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> at the Christmas lecture. No, I don't mean, I literally mean that bit that when you, uh, as in when you've got the corpus oh, colossum severed, not yes, which one's true. creative and which one's yeah. not. When no, you've got no, the no, brain no, split, no, please, no, please no, do not dare you think I was thinking that. I do find when my left brain's more awake, I do do more drawing. Um, no, that's wrong. Oh, God, I'm using the wrong side. No wonder they're shit. Um, the, uh, but the, I mean, is it very interesting in terms of the... I'm trying to think, the, the American author who'd done uh, that fascinating thing where the, those paintings that were done, I think, in the 18th century by a Dutch painter, which are faces made out of fruit and vegetables. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, and you... Well, I forget, what the yeah, hell is that? Yeah, who is that? that? It's, and you can only... Yeah. But some people, of so course... Sp- what, Spanish art. Maybe it's Spanish, actually. Yeah, I know the guy. Yeah, and and, and there there are people that you know the left side will uh, see a load of fruit. Will you know? I think it's the would it be the left side that sees the fruit and the right side which would have the uh, facial recognition? Yeah, sure. Great. (laughs) 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 Helen, you're uh, um, that. Important. This is very much how I found the whole of the idiot brain book, by the way. It was very, very much a yeah, sure book. Yeah, whatever. Uh, um, whatever you like. That, to, to me, I think a lot of things, something at QED Con, where hopefully a lot of the people, the reason they're drawn here is out of their curiosity and their hope that on sometimes, you know, weekly or even daily basis, your, the way you sense the, your ideas of the university it changes. And when you look at the stars, it changes. Do you find that there are moments where is it still important for you to, to think, oh, I've just read this, I've read this book, or I've, I've been involved in this piece of arc welding, and it has now changed the way that I look at the universe? Yeah, because I, I, I think the most boring thing about getting older is that you've seen more things before. 
And the day you read a book or you see a thing and it genuinely smashes apart your... There's a book called uh, 1491, I think, about the day, about South America before, you know, the Westerners got there. And there were whole civilizations in the Andes and I just never read about them. And I remember, I was so excited by this book because it, it, it did that thing, completely changed it. And, and that's, I guess that's the nice thing about being a scientist is that you never, you never run out of things you genu genuinely didn't know. It does get slightly less interesting because the frame, as we understand the framework better and better, like, you know, the day we drop an apple and it goes up, then we'll have a discussion about gravity. Until then, you just, like, the framework of the world is that gravity points downwards towards the planet, you know. Um, but that's the fun, like, you're constantly happy with this elastic state. You've got to be happy with uncertainty, basically. But that's much better, isn't it? Because it seems much better to me because the world's uncertain anyway. So you can either embrace that and go, oh, well, you know, I'm sort of doing all right and I'm doing my best and, I'll, you know, I get stuff wrong and I'll find things out. Or you can go, no, this is my, I'm, I, the world has to be this way, other, otherwise I'm upset, which is kind of setting yourself up to be upset, really. Um, yeah, so the ideas and the science fiction, just going back to the fiction thing, like the best thing about science fiction, I think, is that it's basically a literary thought experiment. You know, in physics and, and the um, early 20th century, this idea of a thought experiment that you couldn't do, but you could examine ideas using a thought experiment. And that's what science fiction is. You, you have a situation which you can't happen necessarily, but it makes you think about the ideas and questions what would happen if those ideas came true. And it's sort of preparing society. I mean, that's the night that the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the lift that talks to you. We've got those now, you know. Um, and the machine that makes something but is almost but not quite entirely unlike tea, right? We've all seen one of those. So, so they're sort of preparing the mind. It's like that, you know, brains can adapt, but it takes time for those ideas to be absorbed. And I think science fiction plays a really important role in that because it says, well, what if and what if? And, and the, you know, the questions now about artificial intelligence and, and how the world... Walk Away, for example, is a recent book about society. You know, it's sort of science fiction, sort of social science fiction, if you like, uh, exploring what cultures do. That, that's, that's, and it's, uh, it's what's allowed as a consequence of the scientific ideas, and it's preparing the mind so that if and when it does ever happen, we can do something about it. You know, and the great minds in science fiction have almost always been something else as well. They've had these great ideas about cultures or civilizations, but that's not the point. The point really is what would a human do when placed in that situation? Um, and it's like, it's practice. It's basically homework for the future, science fiction. Um, yeah, and the, you know, the best, the best science fiction books have got ideas which are so bonkers. Um, and yet, you know, a few years later, you go, oh, that's quite like that, isn't it? You know, it, it's preparing the mind. So that's the same thing of uncertainty. It's like open the doors to see what all the possibilities are. And then at least, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. So maybe you're in a better situation when you get there. But then there's so much science fiction to read. Like I, re I read a lot when I was a kid and I stopped for a bit. And then I went back to it because I just read there's so much, so many ideas. I can't cope with the number of ideas that there are. Who do you particularly, I mean, someone was saying to me the other day, they're going, why do you think so many people are reading Philip K. Dick at the moment? And you kind of go, well, it, it just fits for the time being, right. doesn't it? A yeah, paranoid yeah. mindset, apparently, yeah. is, you know. Um, so, and then you have things like Isaac Asimov. Is it Nightfall? I always forget that's the one which is about the, the culture that collapses every thousand years. Because oh, yeah. they, they have, is it 12 yes. moons and 12 suns? Yeah, and there's a... Every thousand years, there's a total and then, right. yeah, and then and the, the whole, the whole society yeah. goes insane. So yeah. I would imagine that has probably had more people reading that story recently, going, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. so a culture can go totally insane and collapse. <laughs> it's into, all right. Yeah, yeah, it's coming around behavior. here. But there's that great, I think it's an Asimov short story about um, the search for, uh, the, the, it's a bit like the Hitchhiker's Guide, search for the ultimate question thing, like, why are we here? And the, and the story, um, if you've read it, you'll know it, and if you haven't, you probably won't be able to find it, so I don't feel bad about telling people. But the story goes to, you know, our question answers the culture, builds a bigger computer, and, and then the next culture can't answer the question, ask the computer, why are we all here? And you go through the thing about all these cultures asking this question at the end, entropy's run down, you know, the universe is basically empty, the last computer is floating in free space, and there's a pause, and it says, let there be light. And it's, it's this beautiful sort of, and you're like, that was written in 1953 or something. And these questions about artificial intelligence and what, what, what an intelligence is and when it comes, like, like they thought about it then. And it's only now that we're starting to say, what, what does happen if you have an artificial intelligence? What could it do? What's it responsible for? I'm not advocating that, um, I'm not trying to blur the lines between God and AI, but just, you know, the idea of that, bigger ideas, great thing. Yeah, I think that's it. The last question. 
Yes. If those it. those people yeah, listening, yeah. just so they know, Trent is always in the corner with the computer looking up things, and sometimes Josie and I pretend it's actually our mind. Yes, yeah, so when, um, when I did book shambles, I'm not I'm even sure Trent exists. I believe Trent is, in my version of Fight Club, it's just not someone fighting, it's just someone going, I've looked it up, I've looked it up, I've looked it up. So when I, used to, when I did book shambles with Robin and Josie, the screen, Trent's screen was behind my head, and I didn't know it was there, and I just thought they were really clever. <laughs> 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 oh, you mean it's that? And I'd be like, oh, yes, how did you? Oh, that's amazing. That's how we do Monkey Cage as well. Brian has got a screen just behind, just in case anyone thinks that that's... Uh... Um, so because now we've, we've only got 20 minutes left, and I, I want to talk more about books apart from your own books, so the books that inspired you. And uh, so, um, for, well, I, I really wish we could talk about this, but can you just briefly mention that you did an incredible documentary, uh, um, I have to say Helen Kay, don't I now, uh, about your... Um, the fact that when you were a child mm. you lost your ability to talk for a while can you just just tell people where to listen to it because that's to me is an, an oh, incredible thank story you. Oh, thank you very much i um, mean yeah i think it's still on i think it's still on the bbc website i think it was the last time i looked I it was still it's there it's called finding your voice and it's uh yeah so I, I did, I've totally gone in the other direction now. I was talking you, about you, you, I talk far too much now, so I'm making up for lost time. But um, yeah, can, can you give just a brief summary of, of, of what that story is about? Because I will then well, ask something off the back. Yeah, so it's kind of um, so selective mutism is um, it's basically an anxiety disorder that affects children, but it also affects people into adulthood, and it means uh, that there's nothing actually physically stopping you from speaking. Your voice box works. You're able to form words, but it just becomes a sort of focus for your anxiety that you're only <coughs> able to speak in certain situations and that you give yourself you subject yourself to all these rules so you can speak to this person but you can't speak to that person and um, it's not really very well understood it there's not been that much about it before we made the documentary so it was a bit sort of sensationalized and it was kind of sort of called things like the documentaries out there were called things like my child won't speak and you know it's not helpful to be honest not helpful at all uh, and so yeah so we were kind of really lucky because it, it did get picked up and it, you know and people like Scientific American covered selective mutism and covered it from the point of view of talking to therapists and people who are trying to help people and I had lots of emails so yeah in terms of stuff that I've done it was kind of a yeah but I was I was very much a sort of kid who uh, picked up on a lot of things via reading and television because I wasn't socialising and I wasn't having friends this is very tragic uh, but, but no so, but that's a I'm great thing now. isn't it I'm look fine. at all these all these people sitting here are exactly the same tragic people right they are <laughs> fortunately most of them did not enjoy school they did no. not have a nice time no. and they weren't overly gregarious no. and then they got to be 18 years old and they could hang around with the freaks and the weirdos like you and I and you go oh isn't it much better yes. to not look back at school and go best years of my life but go that's over and now <laughs> now my head is so rarely in the toilet you know there's a, it's a really hard thing that bit I sometimes look at kids that I know and I think oh man they're having that struggle at school but I believe that they will come out from that as, as hopefully human beings with a, a, a greater excitement about the world because the tribalism isn't really kicking in but it is a struggle yes. it's a, oh it is and I think it, I mean I think the school system I mean it's a controversial theory that I was not allowed to mention in the documentary but I think the school system is, is, is exacerbating it I think some kids are in just the sort of the sort of fascism of school in a lot of ways you know I think it, it makes it incredibly difficult and I think more and more now because um, you know the curriculum there's less there's less scope for kids who want to just work on their own and things it's much more about sort of working with others and, and who may well be punching you when the teacher's back is turned or copy or whatever and yeah anyway I could go on about that for a long time but yeah I mean I, I uh, think it's yeah but it's, it's something I'm really pleased that we've that got to recently do recently because I've like, got younger siblings and I, I didn't know we have problems in this country now that's a thing that was, that was, yeah. that was alarming have we imported the whole thing or was it just a, a party with some nice clothes on or do you have to actually ask people out for it because I would have hated that as a kid I was like, yeah, I don't get enough rejection. I have it forced on me as well. That'd be great. But yeah, so yeah, I'm very much... Uh, we would have been the kids who didn't go to prom. Yeah. We would have been... The cool ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I meant, Dean, yeah. <laughs> so what were, the, what were the books you were... Uh, when, when, you, when you were in the... Oh, know. God, just... Lo I mean, just, yeah, I think... I mean, certainly it's a kind of cliche, but yeah, just reading science fiction just for the for just for the escapism, and just as as Helen was saying, to just explore those kinds of other ideas, and just you know that fiction becomes a sort of almost like a virtual reality space that you can explore experiences that you just can't have in real life because you don't really speak very much or go out or have any friends. So I mean, yeah, it was it was 
just a massive lifeline for me as a kid. It was just, yeah. I mean, so who, who are your authors that you just think, you know, when you are, you know, teenage, those ones that were the life belt, those, those ones that... I, think, I mean, some of them I can't remember when I was, but Ursula Le Guin, I think, I kind of really loved. And, um, yeah, but I also really, really, I mean, I, I kind of love 19th century novels because handy was how I ended up doing English. I don't know, I don't know what your roots into uh, English literature was, but yeah, so it was those kind of things where you don't get to study. Certainly when I was at university, you didn't get to study that much science fiction but you know and it's kind of really you still discover people i mean they're still we're talking about philip k dick but there's so many people like you know when are we going to have like really big budget adaptations of octavia butler you know when are we going to get those other voices coming in when is it not just going to be you know guys writing science fiction so many women have written incredible science fiction some of which maybe is difficult to film but there are so many other voices i always find that slightly ironic that science fiction is is all about these possibilities it's like space you know it is all about these it's amazing leaps of imagination and then you go oh yeah maybe women could go into space or maybe women and suddenly people go oh no steady on steady on everybody this is this is a leap too far i think you know let's let's keep things real and so yeah so that's one of the things that always really interests me that you know that you don't always get these other voices coming in which that was one of the beautiful things in if anyone saw the science museum london science museum uh exhibition of uh, the russian space program where there was this beautiful letter from uh, a, a farm worker to khrushchev i think it would have been saying and she just said said can you, i want to go into space and i'm very, i'm volunteering and i know i'll probably die up there and it doesn't matter i just really want to do it and you know though it's always an interesting thing to mm. me that the cosmonauts were leading the way when you know america's meant to be you know so far ahead, and yet there were there were women in space 20 years before yeah, um, 1963. Yeah, yeah. 1963. Yeah. Um, so, so what? Uh, um, actually, just because you mentioned that about science, how, as a panel generally, I, I think one of the problems in in the UK is that we get uh, specialised too early, and I do think it would be a, a great change, a useful change, if not a great change, to go that if you're studying a science, there would be an arts module within that, so you have some of the writing that has been inspired by scientific ideas and equally the other way around that if you are studying something like English you may well read Alfred Russell Wallace or other people who were great journal writers and poets do you think that would be uh, is that a, a, an idea that would in some ways broaden our approach to different ideas uh, I, I personally think so yeah because when I, I did my A-levels um, did physics chemistry biology and uh, like I tell everyone I didn't, didn't go to the best school uh, over a thousand students and if you added up the A-level classes in my year, physics, chemistry, biology, you've got seven students, and um, three of them were me. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it actually worked out well, because if I got a bad mark, the entire school average would go down. So uh, <laughs> I got a lot of support there. But um, I also did, his I did the history A-level at the same time, because I didn't, I, I think I had a sort of suspicion of that. I don't want to be a straight science guy. I thought that would be an interesting, because I also, I, I, I tend to get bored easily. I sort of, it, if it focused on one thing for too long, and so I've now made it as a researcher. You know, I'm not actually that, that, that mindset. But I found that really helpful because it was really good to hear about those of the, even like something like 17th century European agriculture. That was, sounds boring, but it was a completely different thing to learn about than the bare bones parliament following Cromwell's thing. And, but it also gave me, a, I, th I think, a good level of respect for the humanities as a subject itself. It's like I, there's so many scientists say, like, history, what's the point of that then? When you see the effort and work and sort of patience and dedication and analysis got into it, it's kind of hard to sort of maintain that level of arrogance, which you shouldn't have anyway, so that's a good thing. So what that, that uh, trying to, what would you, Jenny, if you could recommend any particular book for those people who, very often one of the problems, like with, with science communication, I think one of the biggest problems is, as long as people have some curiosity, you can find a way of luring them in. But that leaves an enormous number of people that you cut. So for things like, you know, whether it's Idiot Brain, whether it's some of the, the things I do with, with Brian Cox, whatever, there will be a cutoff point where you then can't get to the next people. That you can't get to that next tier who just, that, that's not their world, we're not interested. What works do you think, what ideas are the ones that somehow we can find a way of, of luring those people in? I think human stories are really important. Um, one of the nice things about writing about psychology and neuroscience is everyone has a brain, everyone has experienced something in relation to that. So if you can sort of bring them in from something they've always wondered about. 
So like I always get loads of questions about sleep and dreaming and that sort of thing mm. after I've done shows because you know, everyone sleeps, everyone has a weird habit that they or their partner has as they're falling asleep, like they do the twitching or you know, someone who sleep talks or sleep walks and everyone wants to know why. Um, sadly, the answer is we don't really know no, no. for most of it, <laughs> but it's a way in, it's a bit of curiosity. So I think linking it to something that people have experienced um, can be really useful, particularly in the kind of um, biological sciences. And comics. <laughs> I love it. Murmurs of Doubt. If you've not seen Murmurs of Doubt, it's upstairs there. It's being sold. No, it's a, a beautiful uh, collection of stories about moments of doubt, okay. uh, very often uh, doubt, doubts of faith. And I always found that for a lot, lot of the things that I got into, I think, you know, people like Alan Moore, again, were trying, we, we did a show once with Alan Moore where it was, it was Alan Moore and Brian Green. And Alan was just there going, well, I had this one story. I realised a lot of them were just kind of quite you know, silly stories, but it was about a planet so massive that it bent time. And Brian Green went, yeah, no, that would be okay. That would be scientifically <laughs> accurate. And, went, and then he went, then he told this other story. He went, no, that would be. And eventually but Alan was going, I'd never realised what a genius I was. And the, uh, <laughs> the first conversation I had with him over the phone, he went, oh, you've called me at a good time. It turns out Einstein agrees with me. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But that being playful again... Like you were saying, Helen, about um, education and about Helen C, you know, that thing of having the chance to play with ideas. Because I know that for teachers, one of the problems they're still talking to them is saying, we don't have those spare lessons. The way the curriculum is done very often, that to fight and say, you have to, especially when talking about scientific ideas, not just go, then we do this and then we burn this and this leads to this result and that's that equation. You want to go out into when you're looking at the stars you want to do that thing like journal uh, writers like marcus chown and jana levin are very good at doing which is creating images that will haunt you for long enough that when they return you go oh that's just made me think about quantum entanglement again or whatever it might be yeah there's a lot so um there are so many things to say i think i spend a lot of time you know when um i get asked oh can you write the seven books for physicists seven books of physics anything but physics <laughs> like really if you're gonna do physics don't spend your reading hours those books should be written for people you know people can obviously i'm not telling them what they should read but you know you're you need to learn about the rest of the world and that the problem is you don't get a certificate for it and we've got a society which is very you know achievement focused and tick this box and tick that box and actually if you talk to scientists like we're not allowed to say it but um a lot of it's about playing like you just poke it and see what it does and fine you do the science you're supposed to do and it's got you know it's got an end and it's a sensible thing but you always keep a little pocket to just say you know just you, you basically keep a little toy set it's not quite a playroom in your lap but it's a bit like that and you go well, let's just you know the student comes along and i had a student last summer who had discovered he thought he discovered this ridiculous type of bubble and i didn't believe him uh and uh and he, he was doing a summer project and and i was like and he was like well i want to study this and i was like okay off you go and he was right <laughs> right this ridiculous type of bubble actually exists and that it was because he was allowed to play and because he'd had a lab and he'd had a high-speed camera and he'd just gone well that's a bit weird and but it's a student project and as long as he does enough physics of some sort engineering he, he gets his degree so it's all right but in other environments like well there has to be a name and it's so damaging and the problem is you're not allowed to say because the problem is if you've just got a load of money from a research council um and they come along and say oh well what impact have you made in the world recently and you go well i sort of poked it a bit you know it doesn't it doesn't sound very good if you went well i spent a couple of weeks just playing with something to see if it would work but actually that's where the new science comes from so the habit of playing and, and being allowed to fail and it not you know life is not about getting certificates um and just have it and that's the thing the literature is good for as well because in the world of literature and people and social things it's messy and science is messy too and yet we've got this idea that science is very rigid and yes these, these things but you know you read enough science fiction or any other kind of fiction and it's well all the brain you know it's all a bit um it's all a bit woolly and that that's very difficult the, the real difficulty is in having both the rigorous thought and the ability to play because there's a perception sometimes that if you're allowed to play then anything is possible and if you want to believe that the earth is flat or that there are pixies in italy or whatever it is you know clarinets on the moon um you that's you you're allowed to do that because you're playing but there's a difference between rigorous thinking and playing and starting from the world we understand and poking about to see how it might be different and just going oh well all the rules have gone and i think that's the difficult bit is that you can still think properly even when you don't know what you're doing. And that's different to just exploring ideas because, you, because it's Tuesday. 
and, and that's the difficulty that science faces with is, is that we want people to play, that's brilliant, but why throw away the other things humans have discovered when you start to play? And, and there's just a very difficult boundary there between, yes, of course you're allowed to play, but people spent hundreds of years finding these things out, so you probably don't want to throw them away before you start playing. And, and yet it sounds snobbish to say that if you, haven't, if you don't know the rules, you shouldn't play, and that's not what I'm saying, but people have done a lot of work to check some things, and, and so you want to start from that foundation when you play, because then you're playing on top of the castle rather than playing, you know, play, starting again from the bottom. I don't know. It's probably a bit weird and complicated. You well, made a face. Well, no, 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 no. I was making face clubs, wondering if we get a signal going. Shut up! There's another thing going on, but we don't care. So um, the. Uh, Can I just add that um, the whole poke it and see what happens. You can't do that in neuroscience. They get really upset by that. So. <laughs> That's rubbish. That's exactly what you do. You're always poking and making. Yeah, hopefully, Sophie fact. Scott, who's doing the uh, the Christmas lectures Ooh. this year, has asked me if uh, um, I'll come in one day and have one of. The, I think it's a magnet. Pulse to the left hand yeah. side of the ground yeah, yeah. and to um, to stop me talking and uh, <laughs> and the great thing is it's on the actual night of the first night of the return of our nine lessons and carol show <laughs> so then I'm just going to have to get a car and go wonder if I'll be able to say, when I'm going to start talking again I've had it, it uh, that's why I talk like this it's um, no, it, I'm not well <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so because uh, this QED decon is is uh, inspired by uh, skepticism I just wanted the final thing I wanted to ask you is just recommendations on books where you know one of the reasons that most of the things I do is now comes from uh, the fact that I read The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan books that you feel are inspiring books for your curiosity and ability to uh, question the world Helene Kay. Oh, okay. oh um, I think I read Marcus Chan, actually, because I'm but basically he's always someone who has interesting stuff to say about space. Um, yeah, and I've, I, I, I did actually read Dean's book recently, which is very good. So I enjoyed that a lot. So, yes. <laughs> Dean, if you could then recommend Helen's book when yeah, it comes yeah, to you. Yeah, 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 um, that's fine. Helen C., what would you recommend? I'm really struggling because what I like is the variety. There's no one book. There's all these brilliant ideas, and it's the mixture of them all together. What so, is the book you are most likely, if you see it in a second-hand shop and you've already got five copies at home, but you go, I'm going to buy that because I'll pass it on? Because there's certain books that if I see them, you know, whether it's The Little Prince, whether it's The Demon Haunted World, there are certain books I go, oh, I'll get that and I'll pass that on. Oh, there's, a, there's a Feynman well, book that's for a, a quid, I've got to pass yes. that on. Yeah. <laughs> I have got that one. <laughs> I think for science-related stuff, it would be The Earth by Richard Forty, because as a view of the, as a, of the planet, in a very friendly way, but also that sees the grandeur and the, the machine that that is a beautiful thing to know where you live. Jenny? Um, mine's probably Oliver Sacks. I like all of his stuff, but The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat is a classic. Um, and it's lovely because it's little case studies and it's all about the human impact of diseases because it's so easy to get caught up in what's going on in the brain and forget that the brain is attached to a human being who has friends and family and, and he really brings all that to life. And also, Sum of House was based on that book. I watched episodes of House and was like, I recognise this story. That's, they've been reading it, so I found that quite interesting. His autobiography is beautiful as well. It's really, you really always get a sense of a, a very He's wonderful, a wonderful human writer. being. He's yeah. really, yeah, beautiful with words as well. Dean? Um, my song, weird, but the book I'm recommending to people most lately is um, Johnny Vegas' autobiography, Becoming Johnny Vegas, because it's just, it's really funny, but it's also a masterclass in self-analysis and self-psychoanalysis and looking at how his mind works and how it ended up like this and also the, the alcohol addiction side of things, childhood traumas, it's actually really good. So, so um, if, if you're someone who questions how your head works, it's really good for that. So, um, yeah. It is a great book, and the, yeah. part of the fun of it, as you read it, you can see the annoyance of his publishers yes. in the fact that he's not delivering the book they hoped for. <laughs> so, uh, it's a much no, like when Raymond Briggs said, I'll be following up the snowman with When the Wind Blows. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep, you'll love the images I've got of radiation sickness. Um, uh, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, I'll just mention Nine Lessons uh, is going to be at Conway Hall in uh, London on, the, I think it was the 16th, 18th, and 21st, and 22nd, or somewhere. Look, like, 16, look up, 19, 20, 22. Well, you can come on any day, it's fine though. And uh, <laughs> let's not make it so rigid, Trent, by being specific. And um, uh, I don't know when this is going out, so it may well go out after we've done a, a, a benefit for uh, um, Click Sergeant uh, Cancer Charity. Probably will. will it go out after that? What do you reckon? Yeah, anyway, so you missed it. <laughs>
So, um, but thank you very much to our panel. They are going to go up now and sign their books. I'm going to go up and sign the imaginary, still not yet available uh, book of the Infinite Monkey Cage. So, uh, thank you very much to our panel. Enjoy the rest of QEDCon. Thank you very much for listening and in the two weeks since this was recorded at QED, uh, Robin and Brian and Sasha's book, uh, The Infant Monkey Cage book, How to Build a Universe Part 1, is available now so you can go out and get that. And yes, Nine Lessons and Carol's for Godless People is back this year and it's at Conway Hall. In fact, all the people that were on that panel, excluding Dean, will be performing at one of the nights as well as Josie, obviously, and Jim Elkalili and Lucy Green and Matt Parker and all sorts of other people. Tickets for that are available now at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. And if you are enjoying Book Shambles, uh, five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts really helps us out, as well as if you'd like to pledge to the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash bookshambles to get extended episodes and bonus episodes and competitions and prizes, and there's going to be a lot more stuff coming up there as well. And we've also got uh, an announcement coming up tomorrow, hopefully, if you're listening to this episode on day of release, or uh, it might be next week, or it could actually be in the past uh, depending on when you're listening to this. But we are going to be doing some very special live episodes of Book Shambles that you'll be able to get tickets to. And these will be uh, like normal episodes of Book Shambles with Robin and Josie and one guest, but they will be live. So that will be happening uh, soon. We can tell you all about that in more detail soon. So be sure to be following at Cosmic Shambles on Twitter or we'll be letting you know on next week's episode about that as well. Thank you very much for listening and we will be back next week with another new episode. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Trunkman Productions.